Well, early one autumn day, a son was born to parents Thomas and Margaret. And he was a poor nobody, just like his parents. His youth was spent being a punk kid that put his friends to shame with his scheming and his cussing and his fighting. Once a friend even commented that if it weren't for him, the devil might be lonely in hell. He eventually followed his father into the family business and ended up around a lot of religious people. One day he heard some church ladies talking on the street, and they spoke with the kind of conviction and the kind of wisdom about spiritual things that he didn't understand, and it sent him over the edge. And he became acutely terrified of death and hell and of God himself. He ended up following these ladies to church where he heard the gospel and he was converted and baptized there. And over time, he was recognized there as a gifted speaker. So he began to be involved in impromptu evangelistic meetings uh, in the neighboring towns. And he gained a measure of unintended popularity that way. And, um, and he saw from that a lot of conversions, which he didn't expect. But despite all of that, this young man's days were plagued with agonizing thoughts and feelings of doubt. His only relief was when he stepped into a pulpit. There, his doubt would strangely disappear. But once he finished, before he could even get down the steps of the pulpit, it would all come rushing back. This is the kind of man who was willing to do two stints in prison, totaling almost 13 years for preaching. But through all of it, two things never left the man. His struggle with doubt and his clinging to Jesus in faith. This man died around age 60 on the road to preach more. Still not a wealthy man by worldly standards, but he died spiritually rich with faith, even though at times he could hardly believe it himself. Some of you may know who I'm talking about. Stay tuned. I'll tell you at the end. But none of us will likely experience the kind of notoriety or even the kind of persecution that this man did, but all of us to varying degrees will relate to his battle with doubt. Now, as we'll see today in Psalm 73, even the godliest people struggle mightily at times with doubt. But the promise of that text, today's text, is that in Christ, God will help you as a father does his children, the children that he loves, even when we doubt him and his goodness. If we don't listen to what Psalm 73 has to say, we will likely get stuck in growing cynicism, which will drive you to trust yourself above all things and prevent you from blessing others because you're constantly overwhelmed and inwardly hyper-focused on yourself. But the reward will be that coming to God with our doubts and wearisome, even painful questions but we'll be assured of his care and his preservation of us. So before we jump into the text, let's talk context. By way of reminder, the Psalms give us two things that are of primary relevance here. First, an extensive revelation of God's nature and his character. And second, that also he gives us a means of engaging our entire person in godly worship, especially through prayer and song. So Psalm 73 is a wisdom psalm, and it's written by Asaph, 
who was a Levite appointed to lead tabernacle singing during David's reign and even after that. Asaph saw the very best of some of the very worst of Israel's leadership, especially within the priestly ranks. And there are four books in the Psalter, if you didn't know that. And this is the first of book three, which runs all the way to Psalm 89. In Psalm 72, which is the end of book two, the author ends with lots and lots of optimism. And he includes requests of God like this, keep things uh, in Israel peaceful, keep the kings of Israel just and righteous, that the people would maintain pure worship, and that that kind of peace would abound in Israel, including that the righteous would flourish. So it's meant to be jarring when in book three begins with such heavy doubt and cynicism. What happened? There's suffering in Israel now for the righteous. Book three will end with the ominous image of the Davidic crown rolling in the dirt. And finally, you'll notice the themes of injustice and the prosperity of the wicked in this psalm. And I'll, of course, necessarily talk about those as we go. However, especially since Jeff just preached Psalm 10 a few weeks ago, which really orbits around those themes, I'll mostly be talking about them as especially potent opportunities for doubt and unbelief in us. Okay, so go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Psalm 73 and go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. And as you're doing that, as I read when I get to verse 13, you'll notice me insert the word truly at the beginning of that sentence, which isn't translated in the ESV. I promise you I'm not adding words to the Bible. I believe that that word or its equivalent is present in the original, and the reason that that matters is because the whole text is poetically structured around the three times that that word appears. Okay? So I'm not adding anything to the Bible. All right. Read with me. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Truly, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I'd said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, 
I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You can be seated. You see in your outline there, there's a, uh, well, there's an outline in your bulletin. You'll see that the sermon today can be summarized in this one phrase, God cares for his people when we doubt. We'll see that in three movements, verses 1 through 12, God is good to his people. Verses 13 through 17, when our faith fails, verses 18 through 28, he still cares for us. God is good to his people. When our faith fails, he still cares for us. Let's go ahead and look at part one here. Verses 1 through 12, we see God is good to his people. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. He's saying something like, truly God's people may be wildly and unreliable. But God, he is always and only good to them. Asaph has learned this important lesson, and he learned it the hard way. This opening statement is both a joyful declaration, it's also the beginning of a cautionary tale. Before we say anything else, let's say this, that God is good to His people. That's great news, right? Of course it is. However, immediately, a question emerges, doesn't it? Perhaps you've already noticed it. It's already maybe even unsettled you. Here's the question, or really questions. Is this declaration, this good news for you? Are you included in the Israel God is always good to? Which begs the other question, who is Israel in this passage? Which also prompts you to ask, who are the pure in heart? Because the way this is phrased, the two are in fact one and the same. Israel is those who are pure in heart, and those who are pure in heart are of Israel, which leads to a final question. Are you pure in heart? Which is an unsettling question, because we know that we're not. So what are we supposed to do with all of that? We could assume Asaph simply means by Israel that ancient nation made up of ethnic and religious Jews under the Old Covenant. The Bible isn't keeping it a secret that many of them were faithless and disobedient to the degree that God swore in His wrath that they would not enter His rest. So there goes the pure in heart thing. Though clearly at times in the Scriptures, Old Covenant Israel is who is in mind. Is that who Asaph is referring to here? And I don't think that that's possible. He's too specific for that to be the case. Looking at the New Testament for help narrows things down even more. If we were to survey the book of Romans alone, 
here's what we would find. God works all things together for the good of who? According to Paul, it's all those who love God and are called by Him according to His saving purpose. That further clarifies who God is good to in verse 1 of our passage. But that's not all. No one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly by the Spirit. And not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, that is, those who are of faith, who are counted as God's offspring in Christ. And it is in this way that all of Israel will be saved. That clarifies Asaph's pure in heart qualification of Israel. Given that qualification and the New Testament's further clarification, we can gather that the blessings of Psalm 73 belong to those who, though they are sinners, are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit being counted as pure in heart by faith, not by doing works of the law, nor by privilege of flesh. Brothers and sisters, the blessings of Psalm 73 may be freely offered to everyone, but they belong to you. And Asaph wants you to know that before you read any further into this psalm. So let's start there. There's a reason for that too, though. Asaph is about to get really dark, isn't he? His faith is ultimately in the promised Davidic Messiah, but even the faith of the faithful will waver. So we need a soul anchor before we even begin this whole thing. Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I don't think that Asaph is saying that he started out envious of these people. This is a man who knows better, but has been worn down over time. He explains, 4 and 5, for they, the wicked, have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. He's saying, look, proud people don't seem to suffer like they should, like the rest of us do, like I do. And as any finite creature would in times like those, we've got questions, don't we? That isn't necessarily wrong or sinful in itself. For instance, given present appearances, how can it be that it's true that God makes everyone reap what they sow? Look around, nice guys are finishing last, crime is paying. What are we as God's redeemed people supposed to do with that? Why do we hear things in the Bible, like in Psalm 13, David asking, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Or even John the Baptist, late in his ministry, asking Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Let's keep reading. Asaph goes on in 6 through 9. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. The psalmist is saying, since this is being allowed to happen, seemingly without any consequences, these people joyfully display their arrogance and act like they're invulnerable. There's more, 10 through 12. Therefore, these people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there 
knowledge in the Most High. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So he's saying, and since it looks like no one's going to stop all of this, people are starting to follow them into their folly. Even some people who I know to be faithful are admiring them. This is a legitimate concern, isn't it? Jesus himself warns us, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Notice how arrogant people will maintain the pretense of religion. Being outwardly religious or spiritual or a good person, whatever that means, isn't the essence of following Christ. There will be many on the last day who call Jesus Lord, Lord, and will list out their moral and spiritual and religious resumes, and Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, those who are justified aren't those who put their faith in their works, their sincerity, or even those who put faith in their faith. Think about that for a minute. No, it will be those who say with Paul, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, referring back to his religious resume, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Well, this is all very disorienting to Asaph and at the same time very tempting. So far, it's possible that Asaph has just been making appropriate observations of injustice and taking his thoughts and feelings to the Lord. We still have that issue of Asaph beginning by telling us that he, in fact, did become envious of the arrogant when he saw their earthly prosperity. As Asaph excuse me, if Asaph's heart hasn't already crossed into sinful unbelief, when does he? I think that moment might be here at the beginning of part two in verses 13 and 14. Here he moves from observing the external to expressing his internal, from out there to in here. Truly, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Here he reaches an emotional climax. He's not just asking tough questions and articulating his grief and his confusion anymore. He's expressing cynicism. He's questioning God, his goodness, his wisdom, his love. So, You may be asking, is Asaph the real fool here? Is this what happens when God's people obey him? Would Asaph be better off, maybe even happy, if he lived like the wicked do? So far, for sowing in righteousness, he seems to be reaping only suffering. Following them and their foolishness is starting to sound pretty good. Is God really always good to his people? Brothers and sisters, all sorts of things come into our heads for all sorts of reasons, outside of our control even, at all sorts of times, sometimes for no apparent reason at all. For example, I use this one a lot in my office, 
Don't think about pink elephants. I don't know if you heard my words, too late, right? Gotcha. See, you did it again. It's too late. There's, this is a pretty benign example, but as many of you know, all too well, you struggle with this in a unique way, it can get really grim. But be careful, that's not the stuff that Asaph is talking about at this point in the passage. Our wounded hearts are prone to wander, prone to seek autonomy rather than worshipful dependence on Jesus. While temptation is not itself sin, suffering is still a forceful and a compelling enticement to sin. What's originally benign can still be tempting. And Satan is happy to leverage any and all of it. He won't hesitate to speak what he's always spoken to us from the beginning. Those ever-murderous words, did God actually say? The question then becomes, when doubt fills your mind and arrests your feelings, what are you going to do with that? Do you feed those doubts with anger and self-pity? Or do you run to Christ and trust Him to provide you with the strength and with the patience that you need to endure? the truth that sets you free. In these ways, generally speaking, we can think of doubt as temptation and unbelief as sin. Here's a quick illustration. Keep your finger there in Psalm 73. Turn with me quickly to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Here we have two very similar announcements with two very different outcomes. Look down at verse 18. You know the story. Zachariah is visited by the angel Gabriel. Turns out he and Elizabeth are going to have a baby. That's John the Baptist. Zachariah begins, excuse me, Zachariah being a priest, if anyone should know when faith is required of him, it's him. In verse 18, Zachariah says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Then Gabriel rebukes him, and he's mute until his son is born. Why? Because he, verse 20, did not believe. We'll pump down to verse 26, and we see Mary, on the other hand, it's just a common small-town girl. She's also visited by Gabriel, and she was, verse 29, greatly troubled at what he had said and tried to discern what it might mean. In verse 34, Mary replies, how will this be since I am a virgin? Gabriel explains that the Holy Spirit will do this. And what's her response? Verse 38, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So who of us doesn't ask questions something like these? Who of us hasn't considered the gospel and thought, this just seems too good to be true. Can it really apply to me? Notice Zachariah asks, how shall I know? While Mary asks, how will this be? Zachariah essentially says something close to, that just isn't possible. You'll have to prove it to me. Mary, in a sense, doubts, but she also marvels and submits and is commended, even seeming to acknowledge that this will happen. Though she doesn't understand how. She doesn't, sub- she doesn't submit to the doubt, but to the Lord. 
All of this was, of course, part of God's eternal plan, and He uses it all to bring about Jesus, our Messiah. Now listen, I don't want to overstate the distinction here. Day to day, this will never be simple and clear-cut. As believers, we will wrestle with sinful unbelief. That unbelief will never rule or characterize us in the end. God won't let it happen that way. To be His ever is to be His forever. True faith is a gift. How much faith do you need to be saved? Anybody know? Any faith. Any at all. The smallest faith in Christ is still faith in Christ. Even just a mustard seed of it. No amount of sanctification will ever add to your justification. Justification is a declaration, not a demand. And brothers, sisters, do you believe, not perfectly, but do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Then John says you've been born of God. You may doubt a trillion times a day for the rest of your life, and yet nothing in all of creation, including you, can ever separate you from the love of God you have in Christ Jesus our Lord. We must return to this gospel again and again and again and again until you die. Then you won't need faith anymore. So it'll give way to sight and all your trials will be over. Until then, pray with all God's saints that brilliant prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. And he always will. If you're walking with another believer who's struggling with these things, as Jude instructs us, be merciful toward those who doubt. The faint-hearted need your encouragement. However, dear friends, if you're here today and you have not trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if I love you at all, I must warn you, your unbelief characterizes you. It identifies you before your Creator. And the comforting promises I just mentioned aren't yours. Your sin is a declaration of war against God. You've made Him your enemy. You've rebelled against His good design. You are, by your own volition, definitionally an unbeliever. And for that, you stand justly and eternally condemned before a perfect and holy God. But, it's a good word, let me tell you the best news that you'll ever hear. It doesn't have to be that way. The same judge who must condemn you if he's truly good invites you to be forgiven and receive all those comforting promises. And he can do that because he sacrificed his only son for sinners like you and like me and like everybody else in this room. This very moment, Jesus will take the punishment, the justice that you deserve and give you all of heaven in return. Nothing is required except that you come and accept the free offer. There's nothing you can give him. You can't make up for it. All you can do is receive this truth, agree, and trust Him. 
Accept, receive, and rest in his mercy. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Don't waste another moment in unbelief. There's salvation in no one else. And it would be the pleasure of anyone in this church to talk with you more about that. It's what we want more than anything else when you show up. So don't hesitate to approach any of us after the service. Turn back with me to Psalm 73. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. As Asaph is about to slip and stumble, God keeps him from truly falling. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. If he had publicized what he was thinking out loud, it would have been two things. A treasonous lie, a betrayal of God's steadfast mercy and persistent deliverance of his people across every generation. And it would have been Two, a stumbling block to anyone else who heard it. A temptation to follow him into sin. Things only turn around when Asaph is drawn by God into his sanctuary, God's temple, his tabernacle, his special dwelling place. Again, we know from the New Testament that God's true and eschatological temple is his church, the Israel of God, as Paul puts it, with him as her head, Christ is her head and her cornerstone. But in Asaph's day, coming into the physical temple would have meant a few things. Hearing God's word, seeing the blood of the sacrifice, hearing people sing and pray. Not unlike what we're doing here and now when we gather each and every Lord's Day. It's in that context, that context, that Asaph's reason returns to him. And he sees with an eternal perspective and a sobered mind what has always been true all along. God alone is the most high. And trying to steal his job is hopelessly exhausting. So in the next 10 verses, Asaph is going to give us some of the most beautiful and encouraging words perhaps in the whole Bible. Let's look at 18 through 20 first. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. That's a weird translation, by the way. It's true. They may, for a while, know God's common graces, but never the perfect things reserved for God's church. All Asaph means in those two verses is when the time comes like being startled awake from a dream. Everything people thought was so real and so important, all the things that, of this world that they built their entire lives upon, will suddenly, all at once, be over and for nothing. We never have to wonder if God will do justice. No one knows that day or hour It'll come like a thief in the night. And when it does, people will be enjoying peace and security. They'll think everything's okay. But then, sudden destruction. Don't overlook that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and as a 
thousand years is a, as a day to him. It may seem to us slow, but the Lord is never slow to fulfill his promises. It's just not the case. Look at the next two verses. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Those are forceful words. Like nothing else in all of creation, we are made in God's image and endowed with a soul that's moral and rational. Your dog or cat, some of us have some of those. Your dog is a sentient being, but it's not wandering around the house pondering the meaning of life or engaging its conscience. It can't. It's a being of instinct. It's a tragic and it's a gruesome thing when moral, image-bearing creatures live like creatures of mere instinct. Recall, for instance, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. He glorifies himself and God hands him over to an unrestrained heart and mind. He lived for years like an animal, eating grass with hair like eagle's feathers and nails like bird's claws. And his reason only returned to him when he praised and honored, familiar language, the Most High. I wanted to take an excursion here and connect the beast of Revelation 13 to verse 22, but I'm going to let you go home and make that connection. What we need to know right now is that this degeneracy is where arrogance, bitterness, and envy will lead you. You know how you get in an argument with somebody, and once it's over, you've had some time to cool off, you think something like, well, that was dumb. Well, yeah, it was. Now we're acting like a couple of animals. Exactly. Thank God for the last six verses. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Consider just the contrast between verse 22 and 23. We, his people, are beastly toward him. And what's his response? We're like animals. Nevertheless, he's continually with us. We're like animals. Nevertheless, he guides us as a father with his counsel and promises to get us home to glory. We're like animals. Nevertheless, he holds our hand. When Thomas doubted Christ, his resurrection, what was Jesus' response when he appeared again to the apostles? Was he gentle or was he harsh? Jesus said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So, Verse 25 asks, who do you have in heaven but him? 
We confess with Peter and the other apostles, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's remind ourselves often, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny who? Himself. In our weakness, Christ shows His strength, and in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the atonement for our sins. Verse 27, those who perish are those who are far from God, that is, far in heart. Those who are unfaithful to Him, who don't worship Him. Other translations read something like, those who desert God for harlotry and whoredom. Not those who struggle, but those who reject Him as an adulterer, abandons a faithful spouse. The struggle means there's a fight happening, even if it's a wearisome fight, and you're bloody and you're bruised. The fight remains. That, brothers and sisters, is evidence of grace at work in you. Those of you who agonize over doubt and assurance, is it because you don't care, or is it because you care a lot? Think about it. It's the second one, isn't it? You're fighting his faithfulness. You should accept that. That's good to be reminded of. It's one thing to doubt yourself and your own ability to muster up faith and obedience. Those things will fail. You doubt them. It's quite another thing to doubt God, his strength, his promises, and his willingness to help you. And sadly, Christians will do that too, won't we? but never in a permanently resolved way. Like I said before, God won't let it happen. But don't confuse doubting yourself with damning unbelief. They are not the same. One way this can happen is by confusing rational certainty with absolute certainty. Sometimes we get the impression that someone who is a real Christian doesn't really struggle with doubt, or at least not like you do. Perhaps you look around at others and they seem to lack the sin and doubt and fear and heartache that so often haunts you. Of course, you don't know their heart or see them in their darkest moments. We know we're messed up because we can see our mess inside us. We have a unique advantage or vantage point in that way. But we've all got this. However it happens, whether we're aware of it or not, we can begin to believe that the, ex the ex expectation is absolute certainty. So that's what we demand of ourselves. But to have absolute certainty requires omniscience, doesn't it? Anything short of omniscience means there's always something you could be missing that could change everything. But that's, again, putting faith in yourself and in your own faith, not in Christ. Let go of that. What you can have is rational certainty. Christianity is not a religion of blind faith. It makes sense. Yes, there are mysteries. But mysteries aren't illogical. They're just beyond us. 
We don't follow cleverly devised myths about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. You may have plenty of questions and thoughts that make you uneasy. But absolute certainty isn't the expectation nor even a possibility for you or anybody else. It's exhausting trying to be God. If that's what you're waiting for before you come to Jesus, you'll be waiting until Jesus comes. What you can know with a pure conscience is the one who alone has that kind of certainty because he is omniscient. And he's spoken to you infallibly in his word and revealed himself perfectly in his son. If you have absolute certainty, then you don't need God. If you trust in God, who's beyond you, then you have reasonable faith. Don't confuse those two either. You may be requiring of yourself what God does not, and that's what actually doesn't make any sense. Finally, verse 28. For those determined in their defection, God's nearness is their destruction because His justice is perfect. For all those who are in Christ, God's justice is satisfied. So His nearness is our good. And all this goodness, everything Asaph has just walked us through and worked out in front of us, all of it has one goal. Look at that. What is it? The end of all of this, the glory and enjoyment of God expressed in praise. When you have something you especially love and enjoy, you will talk about it. You can't help it, can you? Because your joy isn't complete until you do. As you work through doubt and unbelief, God will use even those things to bring you into joyful praise, even in the midst of terrible things. As we wrap things up, here are a few points of application to take with you. Just two, two short things to consider in light of today's passage. Number one, don't isolate, draw near. Don't isolate, draw near. I'll probably make this point in one way or another in every sermon I ever preach, but the ways God is sanctifying you may not always be evident to you, but likely will be to other believers. There's not a single one of us here that doesn't need that kind of encouragement on a regular basis. Don't rob yourself of it. Doubt isn't our dirty little secret. It's something to process, confess, and pray about together so that we can be healed. I know it's legitimately scary to put that kind of thing out there for other people to see, but please don't let shame and fear and the devil keep you from God's means of grace that he's given to you in the believers that he's put around you. Number two, don't punish, patiently teach. Don't punish, patiently teach. Ever wonder why there's so many deconstruction Stories among so-called former Christians? I'm sure there is a myriad of answers to that question. But one that the parents or those who work a lot with new believers might want to consider is this. When these folks come to you with questions about God and faith and evil and justice and heaven and hell, please be careful not to get frustrated with them or to dismiss them. It happens more than probably we would like to admit. 
If you're having difficulty understanding something, make time for them. Be patient with them, their questions and their doubts. If you don't know something, look into it together. If it's a mystery, explain that to them as well. But don't panic or demand blind faith from them. Give everything you need in Christ, in His Word, and by His Spirit. As we finish out, here's the answer to the question. You may have been wondering who the guy was in the beginning that I opened up with. That was an extremely abridged version of the story of the famous author, pastor, and evangelist John Bunyan, most famous for The Pilgrim's Progress, which some of us have mentioned in the pulpit before. Some of us have even stolen illustrations from their friends who also fill this pulpit, and then they go home to their life of bug killing without anything on their conscience at all. Ridiculous. All he wrote is not The Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote many other wonderful books, and he is a man who struggled with this stuff a lot in ways that some of us will probably never experience. He wrote a book called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. It's in one of those little Puritan paperbacks. It's pretty cheap. You should pick it up. He explains how in John 6.37, Jesus keeps him grounded. If you read Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland talks about this in chapter 6 of that book too. But Jesus says what? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So here's John Bunyan trying to dispute that verse with Jesus and eventually gladly losing. But I'm a great sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I've sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out. But I've sinned against mercy, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. And anything else you want to plug in. Perhaps you need to have that same debate with Jesus and joyfully lose. Search your own personal arguments here and let Jesus answer them. And then rejoice that your sin, your doubts, your unbelief, whatever, can never overcome His grace. It can't happen. You can't win that one. And that's good news. Y'all pray with me.